0: It was during the time of the Cold War and communism and our own way of life were very much in people's minds and he was speaking to that subject. And suddenly, though, I heard him saying, I love my little girls more than anything and I said to myself, oh, no, don't, you can't, don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on, I would rather see my little girls die now still believing in god and have them grow up under communism and one day die no longer
1: believing in god all right welcome back to the left is dead today we are here with guy morris he's an author of several books and uh, nathan's been reading one of them already i know so and we've been interested in him. we have a lot of questions about him. um before we get started i guess so guy do you want to explain you want to name your books you know you have three that we saw and then it'll give a little bit of background on yourself
0: Sure, sure. Um, the, the first, uh, the books are Swarm and The Last Ark are both part of a series that deals with artificial intelligence, political corruption, uh, and religious prophecy. Um, and then my book, The Curse of Cortez, which took me a decade to research, that deals with the true abandoned billion dollar lost plunder of Henry Morgan and how, through about 10 years of research, I was able to connect that to an Inquisition massacre and ultimately to the Mayan creation myth. Um, My background is I I actually came out of a fairly uh, poor childhood. I was uh, a homeless runaway at age 13. uh, But by uh, age 19, I was able to go back to college, earn multiple degrees, uh, number of awards, uh, built a macroeconomic model that outperformed the uh, Federal Reserve, and then spent 36 years in Fortune 100 uh, positions, often reporting to VPs or CXOs, uh, innovating, working with new technologies at the time, you know, desktop computing and internet and um, browsing computing and and cloud and and artificial intelligence and others. So I retired a few years ago, and I wanted to having a life of amazing experiences um, and 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 all of the things I've learned and the great amazing people I've met. Um, I decided that I wanted to become a novelist and write thrillers that were inspired by true events, true history, true technology, true religion and politics to raise awareness of what's going on in the world, but doing it in a really fun kind of thrilling um, page turner kind of way. Hopefully, uh, where people are really enjoying the story. And, um, uh, one, one reviewer basically said that if uh, James Bond had the technology skills of Elon Musk, he'd fit perfectly in one of my books.
1: Yeah, they're definitely, interestingly, like um, another thing we'd like to get from you is, you know, kind of your worldview on stuff here, because, you know, there's a lot of interesting elements to your stories that are mixed from, you know, you'll hear a lot of different parts of them from different parts of the political spectrum or whatnot, but there's a lot of yeah. things combined in your stories that seem interesting. Um, Nathan, do you want to ask the first question about the books? Because, I mean, you, can, you started reading one today.
2: Yeah, I started reading Swarm. Ah, and- good choice. Yeah, because I was, I mean, one of the most striking themes that differentiates you from other uh, fiction that invokes the Book of Revelation, End Times Prophecy, and there's a lot of novels out there about the Book of Revelation in modern times. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the most famous ones just being, you know, the Left Behind series. Um, But there's a lot of other series that are set in the Book of Revelation um, or the period that the Book of Revelation Prophesizes is about if it was today. Um, but you differentiate yourself in mixing secular and religious ideas, including this thing about run amok AI. And you have this really interesting idea about the, the, the different seals of the apocalypse being broken through the assistance of artificial intelligence. What's that about?
0: Well, uh let me try and see if I can back up and clarify a little bit. First off, the the original inspiration for Swarm and The Last Ark, the, the characters in the scenario that all of those books entail came a number of years ago when I accidentally actually discovered that a program had escaped the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories at Sandia, which is an NSA spy lab. So in my head, I'm reading it was an associated press article, very short, one of those little tiny two paragraph kind of things, um, four sentences. And that was it, just a little blurb. But it basically said that a program had escaped the Lawrence Livermore labs, and if I had information, I could contact X professor or Y FBI agent. And I cut that article out, I pasted it on my monitor, I read it every day for months, and I was obsessed with the story. Now, my first thought was that somebody at Associated Press was gonna get dinged for making a bad boo-boo. They should have said it was lost. Maybe they should have said it was stolen or it was corrupted. But the verb that they used was escape. I said, well, if that was intentional, escape implies some level of intent or design. Escape implies some level of intelligence, again, or operational function. It implies the ability for the program to move itself and then go back and erase the computer log trail so that the designers couldn't figure out where it went. So I I spent more months trying to figure out exactly from a functional perspective, how that might work, what technologies were being used that could result in those kinds of capabilities. And then I spent a few more months after that trying to figure out, okay, wow, the the NSA built an invisible spy program. That's, That's pretty cool. I said, if I were James Bond and I went to Q and I said, I need a program, what would I want my perfect spy program to do if it had that stealth capability? And so I went through my data center and I came up with a number of ideas in terms of espionage and hacking and, and intelligence gathering. And I came up with a series of functions. And then at the time I had a friend who was a film producer. And so I took this idea to him and I said, Hey, I think I stumbled on a a really cool story. And so we talked about how to, how to do this. Well, we ultimately created a webisode series. It was a major hit. We had fans all over the world, including, um, the Director of Flight Operations at the Houston Space Center. His alias was Orbit at nasa.gov, and that's what put me in. Um, And we got a studio option. Two weeks before we were gonna exercise the option, two FBI agents showed up at my door. They were rather perturbed that I had figured out something they thought for sure was top secret, and they were even more perturbed that I thought the whole thing was hilarious that two FBI agents had showed up at my door out of something I had just spent months basically just playing with an idea. Well, my wife was was pretty upset. She was was like, why are there two FBI agents in my dining room and what did you do, buddy? And I was like, yeah, I didn't do anything. But that got me much more involved in trying to work through how artificial intelligence is developing, what are the true risks not only from a technology perspective but from a legal moral ethical uh, global stability economic perspective um what were what were governments likely using these advanced technologies to do that were different and apart and, and in some senses more advanced than commercial sector and and that was where the whole series came up from now Subsequent as, as as sort of a side bar, the, how Prophecy got involved in that, was um, I mentioned earlier that I had built a macroeconomic model that outperformed the Federal Reserve. So I had I had some skills in, in building algorithms and, and complex models and thinking through regression models and, and statistical models. And so I was actually reading a National Geographic one day, and um, it was a, a story about fish stocks and the loss of fish stocks in all of the major fishing areas from Asia to Europe to the United States, et cetera. And they were calculating roughly about that fish stocks had decreased about about a third in, in the last 20. At that point, it was 20 or 30 years or something. And it occurred to me that there was a prophecy in Revelation. It was from the Seven Trumpets that talked about a flaming rock coming from the sky, and from that flaming rock, a third of the fish of the sea would die, and a third of the birds of the air would die, and a third of the land, beasts of the land would die. And then the rivers would become so polluted that people couldn't drink from them. And it suddenly occurred to me, I says, you know, we get, a lot of prophecy gets hung up on allegory, uh, how prophecies use allegory. And allegory was just a tool used by the prophet writer to say, I'm not exactly sure how this is going to happen, but this is going to be the result. Maybe it's a flaming rock in the sky. I don't know. But it occurred to me, he said, well, we haven't seen a flaming rock in the sky, but we certainly can go back to a number of different scientific magazines and articles and studies to show that the outcomes of those prophecies had already occurred. And thinking mathematically, I started thinking, now what's the probability of that happening? And what does that really imply to us about prophecy? And for a long time, prophecies were used as this sort of God being angry with the world and coming down to destroy the world and the world saying, gee, we don't deserve this. And it started occurring to me that prophecies in a lot of ways were really talking about how the outcome of man's activities itself would do that, that the source of our own destruction would be our own actions and activities. And as a result, all of the the fish of the land, we're in the sixth extinction. There are several books about that. Um, The pollution of rivers has been well documented in a number of magazines. We all know about that. And I started looking at all the other prophecies as well and started saying, well, if I try to strip away the allegory piece and where a lot of our biases come in, we get cultural biases, we get religious biases, my my, uh, sect versus your sect, Protestants versus Catholics um International biases America versus Islam we if we strip away all of those allegories and start looking at the outcomes themselves I I started saying well could I document how many of those doc- outcomes could I actually document as as having occurred and could I calculate the probability of those occurrences within a fairly short geologic t- time frame which is since World War II and that started really kind of and and that's the kind of a process that, if I were developing an AI to look at this kind of uh, scenario, I, you would you would do. You'd basically use analytical models, you'd use data, you'd use facts, and not try to reinterpret allegories which have been wrong. For the, the interpretations have been wrong, and many times the interpretations are wrong because we try to use these prophecies to predict the future rather than using them to basically interpret current-day situations and so i i decided at one point that this advanced program which has obviously had espionage uh, functions um would had basically grown and matured and has now decoded in time prophecy and doing it in this fairly analytical non-dogmatic way so that it's trying to basically warn the other characters that we're basically creating the outcome for our own destructions and we need to be careful. And so it was a great way for me to bring in issues like climate, population, um, hunger issues, um, you know, food insecurities, water uh, shortages, and distribution issues, um, um, and and of course, politics, weapons, systems, and and all of the other. So it was a great way to kind of bring a lot of that into context by looking at those outcomes and saying well does that outcome exist today and if so how did how did that work and what are the probabilities of all that when you put it all together and part of that whole philosophy as well was that the at the time that christ came there were a whole lot of prophecies about the coming of christ that all of the pharisees got wrong and when I looked at why they got it wrong, it was because they were in, in putting two things. They were putting in their own political and religious power, you know, kind of self-serving biases in terms of how they were interpreting things. And they were looking, they were, had been trying to use the prophecies to try and predict the future so much that they got it wrong. And when it happened differently than those expectations, they weren't prepared to really kind of see the correlation. So... Well, that's all
1: really, it's interesting. This is an interesting position you take on this because it's almost like, um, it's like typical, you know, end times things, but there's also mixed with so much secular technology and like so many secular events and like the sort of governmental world and things like that. Like you say, you mix a lot of politics into this. I mean, um, what are your kind of like personal, like where do you come from personally in Christianity and is this, do you think this is something that's kind of left out of a lot of talks of these you know things is like humans contribution to like where we're going at this point because i think a lot of people have left out that we're doing we're the ones polluting the rivers we're the ones destroying the air and we're the, you know we're the ones making these things that are going to be definitely exactly. dangerous in the all future, of these in things Midwest. have
0: occurred that have already occurred have not been because of some sort of you know out of control act of god they've been because of our own hubris our own greed our own pride our own um, tribalism, um, are the ability to create things without necessarily the ability to control what we create. Uh, nuclear weapon is a good example of it. AI is another example. Now, I've been in the technology field almost my entire career, and I really have a high appreciation for the technologies of artificial intelligence. They can, artificial intelligence, will change our world radically. It's it's being called the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, but with that will come both some benefits, but those benefits will tend to accrue to a few. It will also come some negative ramifications that could be felt by many. Um, Goldman Sachs put out a study about two three weeks ago now that basically uh, suggested that 300 million jobs worldwide could be lost to, due to artificial intelligence or um, transferred, misplaced, um, shifted uh, between now and 2030. And there's absolutely no government in the world that's ready for that kind of massive um, disruption to the economy and to the workforce. Um, We we see issues with artificial intelligence having to do with dark money. Um, Unlike nuclear weapons, uh, which are really tightly controlled at an international level, um, we have no controls over artificial intelligence. So anybody with enough money um, can hire developers, can basically hire buy computers, go into a basement, and create malicious AI software uh, that could have very negative um, consequences on infrastructure, communications, commerce, national security, and and a whole array of other things. So what I'm what I'm one of the reasons I'm writing the books is to, Highlight the, the 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 scenarios that we're not necessarily addressing well, uh, as this technology is moving fast. Now, I, I released the book back in 2020. I was well aware of artificial intelligence and its impact before that. Many of the things that I talk about in the book are just now coming to light with ChatGPT and, and the more commercial level awareness of what artificial intelligence can do. So I. I am running a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of trying to look at what's the next stage? What are the dangers just beyond the horizon? And how could those basically impact us? And let's face it, the job of a thriller writer is to take a plausible scenario and then say, Hey, gee, what could possibly go wrong? (laughs) And and, and so I'm, 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 and, and, and a really good thriller writer will say, okay, how could, how could it go really, really, really wrong? And Mm -hmm. so you know, I'm not saying that all of these things are going to happen, but I'm just saying that certainly the risks are highly plausible. The dangers are certainly there. We're unprepared to deal with them. And we do have enemies, both internal and external to our nation, and who will use this as they've used every technology in history, some to make a, an obscene profit uh, and some to just um, do damage because that's part of who they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I was thinking I'll let
1: anything go next. But I was just quick thing. Do you think it, like that's one of the big dangers of the U.S.'s development of AI is how decentralized it is and how up to individual actors it is at this point? Because that seems to be what I worry about the most is just there's some places where the state controls like the development of AI, which they can do so much. But here, it's like no we encourage you to be free to develop it on your own and i feel like that's a dangerous path to possibly be taking
0: i think that is a dangerous path because let's face it um none of these companies there's tens of billions of dollars going into ai investment right now and none of these companies are doing it for the good of humanity Uh, they're not doing it for philanthropic reasons they're not doing it for humanitarian reasons they're not really trying to solve the world's problems they're trying to figure out how to create a market niche uh, that gives them a competitive edge, and they're going to want to p- somebody to pay for that at some point in time. And those that someone is always the consumer. Um, so, yeah, that and the fact that we do have a lot of malicious players. We do have a lot of very wealthy, criminally minded people around the world. Uh, We do have China, uh, which is really working hard, That China, China and Russia have both said that whoever controls artificial intelligence, who has the domination of artificial intelligence, will lead the world into the next century, and China really, really wants that role. So they're investing heavily from a, not only from a government perspective, but because of the way their government is structured they can require cooperation from data and transfer of resources with every other company in China that's working on on these issues. And China has some of the most advanced artificial intelligence uh, applications that are already out there. Um, You probably already know about their consumer behavioral program that basically monitors consumers on every platform, from cameras on the street to what they do online, to the phone calls they make, the things that they say, their social media, and rating them, actually giving them scores as to whether or not they're a good citizen. And if you're not a good enough citizen, you can't do certain things. You get restricted in terms of your ability to purchase certain things. And because China has also created a digital currency, they can program those things into how you buy uh, buy and sell. What many people don't know is that China has already sold pieces or all of that technology to probably about 40 countries right now and are have actually been in talks with certain American cities on certain elements of the technology as well. So China could easily try to create, imagine a computer virus. Well, computer viruses have caused a great deal of, of headaches and, and, and billions and billions of dollars worth of economic losses. What if that we can now create a computer virus that's AI enabled, that learns the defenses that we're putting up against it and can basically learn faster than we can create those defenses. Um, I could, you know, part of one of those scenarios you're gonna read about in Swarm is what if China creates a computer virus specifically to target the DNS sites that basically comprise the entire internet. So if you bring down the DNS sites, um, you can essentially, def- um, 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 sabotage the entire global internet, which would bring down commerce, which would bring down banking, bring down communications, bring down news. Uh, it would, it would essentially create havoc and chaos. So we're at a situation where it's a technology that could have incredibly good things for, for humanity. I, they're using it to detect cancer cells in cat scans, much more accurate, much faster than humans. Uh, So there are really very good uses for it, but there are also um, some some real risks out there that we're not really necessarily talking about.
2: I mean, one of the most famous examples, I think, was Stuxnet in the 2010s. It seemed to be targeted at Iranian manufacturing software developed by Simons Corporation, Mm -hmm. but like about like I'm looking here, it it was designed to propagate and it probably damaged infrastructure in Indonesia, India, Pakistan, and some other countries. So it was just let loose from somewhere in the US deep state, you know?
0: And, And what was really genius about that particular virus is that it wasn't, it didn't just turn on everywhere. It looked for specific serial numbers on specific types of devices and it was looking for the right type of signature to say this is the site that I wanna now sabotage. So it was an intelligent-based virus that didn't, as I said, it was most places that it wandered around to, it was innocuous until it found the right environments and then it turned on and it was disastrous. Well, that was 20 years ago now, almost 30. So the ability for NSA to create even more advanced technologies is part of what I'm trying to kind of get to in the in the book, and I, I take a, a I'm trying to take a fairly um, agnostic political view. I'm trying to basically I point at the sins on the left. I point at the sins on the right. Um, Swarm deals more. It was written before the 2020 election, so it was written in 20 uh, finished in 2020. Um, so it was really kind of an, anticipating a lot of the anxiety around that particular election and the particular scenario we were faced at that time. Um, but the last arc basically takes it into a new direction as the politics changed. but some, it's the purpose is to really kind of say it's politics are not the savior they're they're part of the problem. um and it's and, and I' just we need to be aware of what uh, what those problems are if we have any hope of understanding them and 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 changing them. But yeah, so the Suxnet was a great, great example. And when I realized that this program had escaped from the same lab that created the SlexNet was one of the things that clued me in on, well, what could they have designed us to do? Now, as it turned out, in um, 2016, CNN reported that Russia had hacked a CIA cyber toolkit. I don't know if you guys heard this story. In that cyber toolkit was virtually every single one of the functions I had assigned to this missing program, including what we now call the deepfake video technology. Russia then sold that entire kit on the dark web, which is why deepfake is such a risk force now, because every despot, every criminal, every hacker, everybody with malicious intent on the planet can have access to those tools. So uh, in 2019, the RAND Corporation gave the DoD a report, and and this report listed the top 10 national security risks that we face. Two of those security risks had to do with AI. One of them had to do with what they call AI data poisoning. Now, AI, all AI um, rely on massive amounts of data, but the companies who are creating these AIs aren't necessarily the same companies who are aggregating and managing that data. Um, And so, if I were to find one of those data sources for an AI, I could pollute that data and create an absolutely untraceable sabotage within the results of that AI because of the multiple layers of algorithms and data filters and and, and, and the black box of how AI functions. So, um, which data, so the RAN Corporation is saying, this could affect our national security because we're now using AI to build our cyber security walls. We're using AI in our intelligence gathering and our espionage, uh, using it to basically uh, monitor and interpret satellite images. Um, And it's used to interpret our our nuclear defense or our um, um, uh, national defense systems. So if I could pollute the data in such a way, um, it could potentially spoof one of our internal systems into thinking that we were under attack and then promoting and launching a a decision to launch a retaliatory strike uh, before we would really realize that that was just a a ghost in the machine. So, And this was actually the second warning that the Rand Corporation gave to the DoD. So these are real issues. Now, we don't talk about them much because, you know, the probability of them happening might be small, but the consequences of them happening are quite large. You think we don't talk
1: about them much because, like, I think maybe they are more inevitable than we want to admit. But like, there's no way I say the defense machinery in this country can get on board to do anything about that because it, it is a slow country as far as adaptation goes. This is a reactive country, you
0: know. It's a reactive country, and and I think the DoD. I've sat in some DoD um, um, think tank discussions, uh, panel discussions on the topic, and the DoD is much. Better at using AI in an advanced technology perspective to create weapon systems and things that are really on the leading edge, uh, where they're they're far more advanced than this. Um, Nathan, the the drone system that that is mentioned in Swarm is actually based on a true weapon system that DARPA is working on right now, um, and so that's that they actually have two versions out. There's a one version of the drone swarm. Called the um, what do they call it? I think they actually call it the swarm, and it's a navy version. Um, I know the army is working on a a different, larger, more lethal um, version of that same same system. Um, and I forgot where I was going with this. Um, I lost track. Oh, our oh, right. ability to d- deal okay. with this. Oh yeah. So one of the conclusions out of this this panel was that. Then the military does is much slower. However, in terms of adapting AI into operational uh, management, logistics, all of the other things that they could help them operate better, including building in some of our defense systems and some of the and, and upgrading some of our older systems that really are several decades old in many cases. So you're right; they're very fast on some of these more advanced kind of weapon uh, weaponized type of ideas. They're much slower, basically. Changing the overall culture of the DoD to basically adopt these things into general operations to make us more efficient in catching catching the the mistakes or or operating better. So and they they they're aware of it. Uh, they have a five, 10 year plan to basically adjust this. And the question is is that can uh, China basically is is working towards an invasion profile for Taiwan by twenty twenty seven the question I have in my mind will we be ready by that time in order to to counter that that threat well do you
1: think say the future of Warfare do you think it'll be fought more as like drone Warfare than it is now because I, there's obviously like a huge Gap in like recruitment targets and things like that in the military as it is do you think that it's going to end up becoming wealthy nation versus wealthy nation as far as who can afford more hardware to throw at each other in the future
0: I think I think that's certainly a good part of it. These are the that's what I'm saying. AI is um, will benefit a, the wealthy, but there's a there's a whole slate of uh, less wealthy nations that will have to just deal with the consequences. Uh, and they they'll uh, there'll be people who lose their job that won't have any other that won't have any other opportunities. Yeah, there'll be a lot of um, losers out of this this game as well. And I think that's one of the major dangers. Um, but yeah, I, it will come down to, I think Russia has pretty much proven, they've pretty much blown their nickel on this Ukraine war and blown their credibility. And and to the extent that they have a very dangerous um, hacking uh, cyber uh, army, um, I think their ability to catch up on the AI front um, is uh, lagging both the US um, and and China. China, however, um really could give the us a run for our money and in some ways are more advanced than we are in terms of how they apply the technologies to broader societal levels so china could definitely be a, a big issue which what one of the reasons that makes taiwan such an important goal 85% of the advanced uh, microchips necessary to build ai machines do c- advanced uh, weapon systems advanced aircraft missiles cars, appliances, all of the smart technology, all 85% of the world's um, supply of those chips originate in Taiwan. So if China wants to be the technological lead in, uh, in on the planet in the next century, one of the things they need to do is be able to control access to the technology. And that's one of the reasons that they really want Taiwan is because of that control. Well, with, yeah, One of the reasons why the US is standing so much against it, which is, you no, know, we... That would basically cripple us overnight uh, from a technology perspective, both from a military, um, commerce, um, intelligence perspective. That would basically be devastating to us to lose access to those chips.
2: Well, I mean, we just had a whole series of black swan events with uh, the COVID pandemic And then Mm -hmm. during that pandemic, we had a fire at a Japanese microchip facility. And then Taiwan was having a drought, which affected microchip production. And so all that leads us to thinking maybe just in time production, and maybe we should do reassuring for the sake of national security of goods like microchips or like steel or natural gas to hedge against future risks, which is why, uh, your novels are so like pertinent for today.
0: And I'm trying to make them that way, but I'm also trying to make them fun. Uh, I tried to give the person, uh, the, the computer, uh, program a personality or several <laughs> it's a little bit of a, um, a schizophrenic personality. Um, I try to make one of the things I wanted to be different in than so many of the other espionage thrillers out there. I didn't want a main character who was a CIA, Navy SEAL, FBI, trained to kill you seven ways before breakfast, sir. Um, I wanted somebody who was sarcastic and sardonic, who was outside the system looking in with a little bit of a um, um, uh, disbelieving kind of uh, mentality, Um, not drinking the Kool-Aid, but so we could, this character could, not necessarily carry the flag, but be could be a good guy in in the long run and, 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 and on other levels. So I wanted, I didn't want to tie it to a particular flag. I wanted to tie it to more human issues, more um, uh, issues that affect every country and every person, and try and bring in that sense of, excuse me, um, agnostic. Um, Valuations to be to be able to bring it be more um objective rather than subjective in those determinations. I'm curious, how do you think? Like,
1: we're talking about big picture here. How, like governments and states will react to these types of things? But uh, another thing, like, is wild to me is. Uh, you know i'm assuming you talk about this a bit in your books too is like how regular people will react to this type of like great great shift in like information and how we understand the world and what we understand to be true and not true um do you think that's going to have almost like a sort of like semi-religious effect on people as it happens because it seems like the more you consider it the more it's like going to be it's going to shock people's worldview completely just as much as if they were to discover god or something like that almost
0: well i think that i think you're right and I, i i some of the areas i still need to try and explore which is <clears throat> what are some of the cult-like opportunities that are going to come out of this sort of phenomenon? And, and I think we're starting. You know, Elon Musk has a little bit of one around him. Um, but even so, I was looking at. You know, and part of prophecy is that toward these these days, we're told that a big portion of the 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 Christian Church would become what's called apostate, which is where. <clears throat> It would get caught up in um, issues that have nothing to do with scripture and teaching and it would really become more of a political would really become more of a power structure and we're seeing that today as well and so i'm trying to basically say that that in this state and time you you can't just make a black and white oh you're either in the church or you're not it, it's a question of what kind of teachings are you really are you really getting and is that really consistent with what um, we're supposed to be practicing. We're supposed to be living. Um, I, I, you asked earlier my, my, my issue of faith. I'm a Christian, but I don't identify with a lot of the the Christian nationalism, which isn't to me what scriptures teach. I don't identify with a lot of the the the, the radical ideas that you see in some places. I, you know, I, I go back to what Jesus taught, which is it's more important that you care for each other, that you love one another, that you forgive, that your heart be. Um, one of um of, of generosity and grace and and forgiveness. And and those were the, that was what he taught others through his example, and that's what he I think he meant to, to teach us. So I will see that in these time frames we will see though religion used just as it has been in history as an excuse for inhumanity to man. And we saw it during the the Crusades, we saw it during the Inquisition, we saw it during some of the indoctrination of um, native americans in america we we see it uh we see it used this way in iran and in the middle east we see it even uh even putin it's just the refugee <laughs> crisis is here you
1: know What's the refugee crisis the refugee crisis is in the west it was used that way by far the far right you know i i've seen your twitter and everything like that so i understand yeah you're coming from much more like Literal reading of the Bible, clearly, which is admirable. Oh, yeah, I, mean,
0: I I I try not to get caught up in sort of the religious identities, as opposed to being, you know, trying to understand my own spiritual faith and and be true to that. And so I'm 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 trying to point out that um, oftentimes things done in the name of a religion or done in the name of God aren't necessarily godly or scriptural. And we, while we're in these days, we have to be able to understand that that's also something that's going to be occurring and rather than seeing it as proof that god doesn't exist we we can see it as consistent with all these other scriptures about what the times would be like right now and say well that fits too that that fits into this this picture that we we're, we're told we should expect and and so I, again i'm trying to look at what's actually happening in the world does that have a um a global um Implication and does it have a prophetic implication? And I'm trying to kind of get raise that bar to say we're 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 either going to survive together or we're going to destroy each other together. And and so as I look at some of these issues, we we see Ukraine escalating. We see Ukraine, Putin being cornered and losing, which might push him. And a topic I'm working on one of my next books is will that actually push him? towards getting desperate and, and launching nuclear a nuclear attack. And part of that depends on the 2024 election. So a lot of these things are all tied together in terms of how these things might play out. And so I'm trying to paint that picture, but do it in a way where I'm being fairly selective in the issues I'm, I can deal with so I can keep the story moving forward to, um, with, a, with a really good pace. So, Earlier, you used
2: the phrase act of God, which is a tricky phrase, how it's used sometimes. So, for example, um, some of the Japanese anti-war activists right after World War II um, described the bombing of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki as an act of God. And they had strategic consideration for doing this. They argued, we have to make sure that this never happens again. We don't want to just blame the Americans for what they, uh, what their government did to us, let's say. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a weird kind of thing with not just, you know, the potential nuclear catastrophe, you know, it wouldn't be fair to say that humanity as a whole did it to themselves, but maybe some people did it to themselves. And so, Act of God is really tricky. And that's why I thought it was just so fascinating um, hearing you talk about calculating the probabilities of all the seals of the book of Revelation being broken. Mm -hmm. And how most Christians, like from my evangelical background, we we, like more fundamentalist background. We tend to think that, well, God has his plan and he's going to do it no matter what. And our actions to the planet don't affect it. And you have the reverse sort of view that like, well, maybe human action does have something to do with this.
0: Yeah, I do. I, 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 I think most of the scripture is basically saying, you know, your actions have consequences. Most of the Ten Commandments are basically are, are there because those issues, those actions basically have consequences on our relationships. And most of the times, the consequences that God's looking for is how our our ability to, to care for each other, to love for each other, to basically be the spiritual people that He wants us to be within this existence. And so, yeah, I, I, I it wasn't something I was taught. It was something I, I kind of backed into by looking at the data and looking at the situation and trying to think about all of the different prophetic um, uh, teachers that I had. I, you know, I had seen over the years, and I had been to a lot of evangelical churches, and how so many of them, even the Left Behind series, had a lot of things in there in that book that were, particularly in retrospect of even a few years, were were wrong because they were infusing sort of some biases and inter- trying to predict into the future, and trying to interpret things like the, the whole idea of that there would be this one leader over the whole world, right? A one world government. I said, well, that's, that." I, I really could never see that happening in any sort of practical sense because we, we are so territorial, we are so tribal, you know? I can't imagine Russia deciding that, and, and the U.S. deciding that they would have any one person leading them, or China. What I could see though, is that we could see a leader with a world leader rising up who, who might be, just as as Hitler r- rose up and basically created havoc for tens of millions of people, um, we could see that reoccurring again. And so I started looking at prophecy and started saying, well, how, why is it that so many other people get so many of these things wrong? Could, is there a way for me to strip out even my own biases to say, well, could I, could I, the first question was, are we living in prophetic times or not? You know, um, people at the, when the, the uh, during the crusades thought it was prophetic times, people uh, around the year 1000 thought that that was the marker that was gonna take them into the, the next thousand years. We, we uh, the Seventh-day Adventist in the first part of the 20th century were, had even picked a date. They had, I think they picked three dates. Um, so it's, I said, it's, it could be very easy to make those same mistakes. I said, so what would, what would be a more objective approach? And I found that most people were getting things weird because they were looking at the allegories and interpreting in the allegories, their own biases. I, as, as a guy who built models, I was always looking for data. Is it true or is it not true? Can it, is it validated, is it not validated? Is there data to support that this has happened or is it hasn't happened? If it's happened, what's the probability of that happening? And so I even some of the things that talk about the morality of man getting worse, well, there's a subjective level of that. We don't really have good metrics on that. So if I just put that one aside, but I only focus on the things where I can say, well, has it happened, yes or no, um, and can it be documented? That's when I, I started really trying to think in terms of, wait a minute, all of these things are occurring, but none of this had to do with God coming down and doing it to us. Every single one of these things had to do with the result of our own actions and i think the scriptures talk about the consequences of our actions and the consequence of not um repenting at a at a, at a at a human at a global human level means that we're still at war we still have politics issues we still lie we still cheat you know we can call ourselves christian every any day of the week but it's it's not how, what we say it's how we act and so and, and so if i filter through all of that kind of um facade, um, I, I started saying, well, there's a math model here. There's, there's a probability model. And the probability, matter of fact, I actually spent a weekend. I spent a three-day weekend building that model. I was working with a geologic company at the time. We had like 100 million years of geologic data. I brought in a stack of history books. I brought in a stack of National Geographic and uh, Autobahn and some other environmental magazines. And I had only about 15 um, prophecies um, that I was going to test. And it was, it was a small test, and but but I wanted to make sure that every one of them had, there was some sort of data behind to say, yes, this has happened, what's the probability? And I spent the weekend using our computer models at work and I came back with, after the end of the weekend, once I added the probability of this plus the probability of that, plus each one, uh, I came back with a scenario that said it was one in 1.4 trillion against random chance. Uh, that we were basically in prophetic times, and that exercise changed changed me fundamentally. It changed my. It, it took time to, for that change to to really, and it's still I'm sure it's still happening, but it took time. But it changed my perspectives in terms of my career. Changed my perspectives in terms of my life goals and building wealth, and uh, you know what was I willing to sacrifice or not sacrifice? It changed my perspectives on the type of church I want to attend. It changed my perspectives on my family and my relationships, and it started. It started giving me thinking that prophecies are really great. If you look at end time prophecies, eighty percent of them are what's called signs of the times, and these are basically wake up calls to say, hey this is coming and it's coming going to come quicker than you, you, you think. Now's the time for you to do, do that great reevaluation of your life that you need to do that. Most of us don't really want to do until, until we get to the end of our life. But if you knew, the Dr. came to you and said, Nathan, sorry, dude, you've got this incurable disease. It sucks. We can't do a thing about it. I'm going to give you 7, 10 years at most. You got to, you got to live the life. You really want to live in those 7, 10 years, make some good choices. Most of it would take that as an opportunity to make better choices. And I think prophecy is the same thing. It's the opportunity for us to say, wow, if that's true, how should then what else might be true in Scripture? How should this lead me to make different choices or better choices than I'm making now to prioritize Less on politics, less on winning, less on career, less on wealth, less on these other things, and more on the things that really matter in the long run. And so I think that's that's kind of what I'm trying to to get out is and it makes a fun story as well. you know I mean, it's you know I, I think it's really great to see all these real issues, real real vulnerabilities in in the hacking world and the cyber world and the weapon systems and and contrast that with corrupt politics and churches and see what happens. So I think it makes for a fun story on, on top of all that.
2: Yeah. I mean, for example, like I know a guy who wrote about the story of Joseph and the Pharaoh mm-hmm. and he argues that, okay, Joe, what does Joseph do? He says there's going to be seven lean years. So he tells the Pharaoh to build a big granary. And then the pharaoh is prepared for the future. And what's interesting about that story? It's kind of allegorical. It's probably how ancient temples worked. They had stores mm-hmm. of grain, they had stores of precious metals, uh, and they had a shekel system. What? And they were hedging against future risk, right? You know, whether ecological or financial or otherwise. You know, so they what the things that are sacred are really hedging against future risk in some ways. So I think your reading of the Bible in some ways is closer to maybe even the archeological record of what temples did. What what's this thing about animal sacrifices and what they may be hedging against
0: future risk. Yeah. Well, You know, that's interesting because that actually gets leads into the last, the book, the last arc. Now, one of the prophecies that, uh, people talk about a lot in, in in prophecy, and I'm 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 not 100 percent sure that I, I read it the way they they do about a third temple, that there will be a third temple. But I sat down and I started saying, well, if there were to be a third temple, how could that possibly, How could that we get through the current constraints, uh, both from an archaeological perspective and religious perspective, and what are the the events on the ground? I said, first off, a third temple really none of no temple really has any real meaning in the jewish culture unless there's a an ark unless there's a a mercy seat in order to sprinkle the blood on the temple was there for basically cleansing uh, not just to be a building in and of itself and so i started researching the ark and i I don't know if most people a lot of people i know are aware of the ark that's been in ethiopia Um, it left uh, jerusalem about 2,600 years ago with Solomon's son Menenlech and 500 priests. Menenlech um, and, like and the priests basically took it to a, an island in Egypt called Elephant Island, which actually fulfilled a prophecy from Isaiah that there would be a temple on the border of Israel uh, in the land of Baranamis. Um It was there until the Romans chased it away, and then it went to Ethiopia where it was in synagogues for a few hundred years. And then the Templars came along and then moved into churches, and it's been in this one church for like 900 years what most people and there graham hancock and there have been a number of journalists and there have been a number of stories and documentaries about it and so there's history there's papyrus there's there's documented archaeology so the fact that there was an ark used in temple worship is a fact now some people say it's not the ark made by moses we'll get to that in a second what most people don't know is that in january 21 an Ethiopian militia basically stormed the city of Axum, raided the uh, St. Mary's of Zion church, massacred 750 men, women, and children. The Ark was stolen and sold on the black market. So after 2,600 years, during this last day period, during a time when the Israeli Sanhedrin have five different heifers that they think are gonna be uh, pure red heifers that they could start temple sacrifices, an Ark may actually be available um, on through some means. Now, I speculated in the last arc who I think had the money and the power and the desire to have that arc. But in that research, there is a second arc. Now, in the 1960s, there was, uh, in, outside of Qumran in one of the caves where all the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they found what's called the Copper Scroll. And they found it completely by accident. It was actually hidden where all the other scrolls were in jars. The Copper Scroll was hidden behind kind of a fake mud, Wall, so it was actually meant to stay hidden. And but they it took them years to unravel it and 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 sort it out and clean it up, and they discovered that it had um, sixty four locations where pre Babylonian temple priests had hidden tens of billions of dollars, um, several many tons of of uh, gold, silver, and temple vessels. And this story was actually confirmed. It's actually uh, repeated in the second book of um, Maccabees, and. In the 64th location is a second copper scroll that describes where Jeremiah hid the Ark of Testimony made by Moses. Now, for 50 years, people have been unable to decide, find any of these 64 locations. They were all looking in the wrong place. They're all looking in Jerusalem. About seven years ago, a guy came along an American, ironically, and he decoded all 64 locations underneath the ruins of Qumran itself. He was so good at what he did, he was able to go to the Sanhedrin, convince them that all the locations were under Qumran. Sanhedrin went to the Israeli Archaeology and Antiquities Group, got them to go out and do a survey and a metal scan. They confirmed non-ferrous metals under every one of those locations. But they only dug down two feet, even though the scroll said dig down nine to 12 feet. And then they buried it up and said there's nothing here, and they killed the rumors. Because... Qumran is part of the Palestinian West Bank. And by law, if Israel digs anything on occupied territories, it has to go in this military warehouse, which is governed by this multinational tribunal. In other words, they'd never see it again. So that was about the same time that Netanyahu started getting much more aggressive about having a single state solution, because under a single state solution, they could actually dig up the treasures of Qumran and get to the ark made by Moses. So all of this basically is is all of that's true story, um, but it by having factual legs on the story, then I can paint a fictional plot and and characters about how those things might play out in in, in near future. Uh,
1: that's a lot. I mean, I don't know. Some of it I would contest. I think that like Graham Hancock and things like that, obviously I would contest a bit, but I don't have enough facts on me to like do that right here. Um, I do think it's interesting though. I mean, like Nathan said, to sort of interpret prophecy as more of a warning rather than an end all be all. I think is interesting. Um, you know, because I see this a lot now, it seems that free will isn't really accounted for anymore or like human choice isn't really accounted for at this point. There's a lot of... This seems to be a very calvinist country at this point um whether they intended it to be or not but there's a lot of predestination of who is good and who is bad in this country and i what do you think that are some like i guess it's kind of a wrap-up question here i mean going forward as we face sort of these technological changes and things like that what do you think is the best solution for say actual believers to get you know get them ready or to actually have them face this rationally rather than emotionally which is a lot of their problems well
0: i i i tell everybody don't put your it's first off. they said, it, if the prophecies are true then expect that it's going to get worse and and don't use it as an and don't try and figure out who's to blame for it to getting worse just say well that's part of what's what we're told is to expect and uh, if we're if we're seeing the things that we're told to expect we should rejoice that a believer should rejoice because that means that the lord will be coming soon and we all know that everyone every one of us has an expiration date whether it's a natural expiration date or an you know, we, we can't assume that just because we're an advanced civilization that we couldn't cause our own demise. That could come through climate, that could come through nuclear war, that could come through um, uh, artificial intelligence-based espionage that brings down infrastructure. We have multiple scenarios now that could lead to really bad situation. Food supplies are are really um, are getting scarcer. They're getting they're getting difficult. If we don't have international, something happens to the international trade model. Um, we're U.S. is much more vulnerable than we think. Comes to a lot of those levels. Um, I just saw an article last night that the uh, biggest crop producing region in the nation, 25% of the food comes from Central California, which has had the drought, and they were basically struggling with the drought. Now they've basically been flooded, and millions of acres have basically been flooded. So we're going to see all kinds of food crops um, become very scarce, which is going to put, push prices up. It's not the fault of a politician on either side or the other, it's just part of what's happening. So I tell everybody to, first off, see it as an opportunity to rejoice, that the, the um, our, our redemption draws nigh, which is what scriptures tell us. Use it as an opportunity to make better personal choices. If, if this is in fact true, and the math seems to say that it is, then it's not about, I've spent most of my career trying to build, um, and in part because I was homeless as a child, thinking that my job was to build an inheritance for my children and my grandchildren. Um, I'm realizing that's probably not as important as the time I have with them right now. It's not the inheritance, it's the time that we're sharing now. And And what am I doing in my faith to strengthen my faith and make it uh, and to bring me closer in line with who I'm supposed to be, and then not to put my faith in the technologies that are coming because there's technologies that are coming. We're not going to get to the Star Trek sort of Uber um, um, utopia where everybody has a really meaningful job on a starship, and we're all you know we're all well educated, well dressed, and well integrated, and our technology has basically saved the world. I think that we're if we look at the negative trends or the the, the dangers that we have in the world today. We don't really see positive trends that will lead us out of that. If we, and that would include food, water, education, shortage, um, 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 housing, um, pollution, climate, um, jobs, security, um, um, national economics, politics, war. You know, none of these are on a positive trajectory right now. So we just have to accept that as the reality, and then make personal choices as to how we're going to respond to that. It's not, you know, there's a lot of people say that it's not when bad things happen to you; it's how you respond to that that defines who you are. And so we have a we're having we're have a time where there's some potential global things that are going to go wrong, and as God doesn't God didn't call people as as a nation or even a family; He called us as individuals. So we have as an individual we have a choice of how we respond and so i tell people go back go back to your basics go back to the scriptures go back to uh, what it means to be christian in, in in general and and put your faith there and i don't put my faith in governments i don't put my faith in technology i don't put my faith in elon musk uh, i'm learning to basically see those things for what they are which are temporary tools it, that are we're basically told will happen as these things come about.
2: Nathan, you have anything? Um, I didn't know if we want to ask about, uh, comparisons of your work to Dan Brown or, uh, oh, also author event network too.
0: Uh, well, I, I, I was pleased that, um, um, Major reviewers like Kirkus, um, Book Life, Booktrib, uh, Reader's Favorites, some of the, the major well-respected reviewers in the industry have all given me very favorable reviews. Um, I've been compared often to Dan Brown, but also to Iris Johansson, Robert Ludlum. One person compared me. One person said that if Dan Brown and Tom Clancy were to write a book together, it would look like The Last Star. So I've been very honored. Um, these are all I think great authors, uh very successful authors and to be compared to someone I I admire as a thriller writer uh is is great. Now I don't always agree with Dan Brown's um conclusions or or what he writes about sometimes, but he does write about some really good he has he is a good author. Uh has a really good way of creating characters and story and plot and thrill it. Uh write a good thriller. Um so I was I've been very honored to be uh, compared to all those guys so many times by so many people. Um, it, it motivates me to say, okay, well, you, you, gotta get serious. You gotta, you, okay, the next book has got to be even better. Okay. You gotta do your homework now, Morris. Um, Author event network was, is something I actually founded after my first second book came out. Um, you know, I, and I've spent about the last three and a half, four years, just heads down, just really trying to, write really good books, do the research, and my research takes an nor- enormous amount of time. Um, I found that building a name for myself, um, getting my myself out there, building, finding readers, um, was really hard. There's a lot of ways to promote your books online. They're really expensive. Uh, they're really competitive. Uh, I was rarely finding that if I spent $100 on promotion, that I would earn $100 in, in royalties to get it back. Um, so, but what I did stumble onto was I actually joined um, uh, an author friend out here where I live, which is north of Seattle, and he went to a local festival, uh, and it was a typical kind of thing where they have a couple hundred different uh, tents or booths set up, and you'll see pottery and jewelry and honey and spices and artwork and crafts and um, your your basic typical craft festival. And I realized that that was an t- untapped market. That if I could create a group of authors, we could uh, split the cost of a booth, uh, either a single booth or a double booth, and get multiple authors in there to basically do of different genres to do book signings. And I found that it was extremely popular. We would we would um, be the only book authors in the entire event, and so we were somewhat unique. And so we've got uh, this year. Um, starting last Sunday through to the middle of October, we will be at a, a book festival that's either one up to five days over a weekend, every single weekend through October. So this has been our first, our second year in operation. We're up to about 40 authors. We've got about 30 events. between. We've now got a Portland chapter. Um, and, um, so we're going to be, we go out every weekend and it's great. I get to engage with readers. I get to talk about the the philosophies and the, the research behind my books without even talking about plot at all, which is really cool. Um, and I, I'm building personal relationships. I've had people come back buy one book, come back two weeks later and say, oh, I love that book. I want another one. Um, and so it's been great. So we'll be out every weekend, um, through the whole summer. And then what's really cool about this is that we can come back next summer and do it again. So um, I sell hundreds of books a year and I get top margin. So um, rather than giving my margins away to Amazon or the bookstore the, or the chain, I'm keeping the lion's share of it. So it's profitable. Uh, it, uh, it's a great return on the investment. It's great to build my audience. I get people signing up for my newsletter um, and they get to have a personalized signed copy of the book. And and get to think that they get to know the author a little bit. Uh yeah, I think you definitely
1: provide an interesting perspective. Um, like I said, I checked out, you know, your social media author page and things like that. Your Twitter, you know, I can see where you're kind of coming from politically. And I think it's a very interesting perspective to have as far as like these kind of topics go. In, you know, in fiction even, because these are typically topics of more right wing type of anti-logic anti-science types and things like that you know so it's interesting to see somebody with a lot of experience in technology and who knows these things writing about it i'm definitely going to get more into it um nathan's already you know he's recommended one already so great. uh I'll yeah it. it's been great having you and yeah once you, you write another one we'll always have you back you know this has been awesome I And mean, you really provide an interesting perspective and uh, i think other people should read your books too so if you want to tell people where they can find you and
0: well, uh, easiest way to get started is guymoresbooks.com. You'll find buy links for the books. You'll get highlights from reviews and links to reviews. Um, you'll get um, fact versus fiction pages. So, if I I put so much fact within the fiction that I like. I feel like I have to be transparent uh, to say which is which. Uh, there's image libraries of actual locations and there's some trailers. And so it's a there's some of my social media and my press kit and a number of other things. So it's a really great place to get started. And I'll link you to all the places that are selling the books. And we'll have it in the show notes too. So awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been fun. I appreciate the time.
2: Yeah, it's been great. Thank you.
0: Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yep.
1: back well it was interesting interview to say the least Like I, I'm not sure about a lot of it I'm not sure a lot about it. some elements of it um, like you were saying off recording here and on the
2: recording too Graham Hancock is a little sketchy for me but I don't know what do you think Uh it's good to hear someone uh, doing something different with the book of Revelation that's more yeah. science slash technology based less vengeful yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's not about
1: just owning everybody who said you were wrong, you know. Like, definitely interesting to see like an actual. And again, it's not even necessarily like you don't necessarily have to believe in like revelation. I think even like get into it because like this yeah. like a lot of these elements could just happen, and that mm-hmm. is true. Like because obviously technology, we're dumb as shit, and we're gonna fuck it up somehow. <laughs> you know, talking about like decentralized AI, like the way it's built here, you know, where we talk about state control in China, and then we talk about like oh well. It's just a few lunatics here who have spaceships and shit that are building it. Which seems unsafe. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's why I hate it here. I hate like the fact that we like, oh, Jeff Bezos is working on one, Elon Musk is working on one. Well, Elon Musk got kicked out of one, now he's working on Truth, GPT, or whatever. What the fuck ever. <laughs> but yeah. And then, you know, like, Mark Zuckerberg has one. And Zuckerberg has the metaverse, but that didn't work. It's funny, that's the first cult. That's the first Web 3 cult was um the bored apes. The yeah. NFT. Everyone fell for that. And yeah, now we have like Elon Musk, which is strange to have like techno gods and shit like that, man. So it's good to see like a fucking a warning. But it not even it doesn't even seem too evangelist, you know what I mean? Nah. I mean
2: you were reading one. What you get from it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and Swarm, uh I haven't finished the entire thing, but it does seem like more of like the seven seals are more, he said more literal. I mean, in some ways it's more allegorical because it's kind of like, well, it's not literally warm board is going to fall from the sky from a, you know, from an altar in heaven. It's, it's like, no, we're poisoning the ocean. Yeah.
1: Yeah. it's, yeah. And it's interesting to take into account, like, human factors in this too because most of that stuff is like you have a lot of like christian dominionists who like say you know who are love love the end times but they're also like they're cool just like plundering the planet no problem which is most christians honestly i mean every i do it too so i don't give it you know i'm in Mm -hmm. a single state like family you know a family where everyone has a car for each adult in the household so yeah yeah like i'm not guilty i just don't think it's my right to do so
2: i just i feel bad about doing it so i'm better than them I think um, it's tricky. I mean, he really emphasized that's about what individuals do about this or that. And I think it's interesting reading, especially the prophets, major and minor. Um, they kind of have different stances on whether it's really about individuals being punished for their sins or children being punished for the sins of their ancestors. Or, and so between like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and um, Ezra they take different positions on whether God punishes a single generation collectively for their actions or whether they punish descendants for the sins of ancestors or whether they just punish each individual yeah so it's kind of like even in the Old Testament it they disagree on who actually gets caught holding the bag of past sins yeah it's
1: interesting too to think like how like without human acceleration like what does that mean for like end times prophecy you know mm-hmm. how do you account for that like well what if we weren't pieces of shit? <laughs> let me propose this question to you my friend what if we didn't suck
0: you know <laughs> like how does that
1: change the timeline or whatever because obviously like prophecy is prophecy to some extent you can't deny like the end all result here so like does that I'd be interested in uh, having a like, a longer talk with them. like I said on religion as we talked off Mike like it'd be interesting to have a longer talk just is there a way to like, I guess, and I guess by theologically you could, because the Israelites didn't incur wrath until they started acting in a way that meant they incurred wrath, right? You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. until misbehavior was noticed that misbehavior was punished. If you, I suppose like if you're theoretically acting under like the same like God of the new, the old and new Testament, you could put off revelation theoretically, you know, because it's just it tracks. Don't piss them off.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this gets into the whole, like, so there's this book, uh, Scientists as Prophets by Linda Walsh. And she mostly researches Robert Oppenheimer after his involvement in the Manhattan Project and how Oppenheimer took on this kind of uh, prophetic power. role. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the destructive power. But then also he's trying to warn the U.S. government, like, please don't do this again. But it's kind of like, well. Yeah, he was no, he was, yeah. didn't have the guts of a Lemay yeah like it's suspect it's us
1: yeah it is. he is a strange character isn't he like he seems like an odd guy because he's like he definitely seemed like he loved his invention after the fact but also like hated it yeah
2: yeah like who I, who's responsible in the end you know is it just an act of god or at some point do we have to start going after individuals um fdr yeah.
1: We should cancel them.
2: <laughs> that's the lesson to take away from this one, folks. We're canceling FDR. No
1: more FDR. <laughs> the new deal's over. I think that's a good place to end, man. No, this is interesting. <laughs> we should definitely return to it with them, and I think we're going to have some more, let's go with some more religious-themed guests as we go forward here, like religious historians and stuff. It'd be interesting. I got a few in mind, so. All right, man. Good night.
2: I attended service at a little church in the country not long ago. A prayer was led by an old country preacher who then raised his hands as everyone stood and sang, My God is real. A warm breeze through the open windows brought in the smell of new mown hay in a nearby field, and the singing of birds could be heard in the moment of silence as the preacher opened his Bible to read. And then a little old man stood up, bent with age, his hair thin and white, and said, Preacher, tell them that Satan is real too. You can hear him in songs that give praise to idols and sinful things of this
0: world. You can see him in the destruction of homes torn apart. I know that.